man, it's so good to see all of you. I'm Josh. Uh, I'm the founding and teaching pastor here at Door of Hope, and we are going to be continuing uh, in our series, The Kingdom of Grace, which is looking at the Sermon on the Mount um, through the lens of the gospel or through the lens of grace. And, uh, and as we've uh, been digging in, we've gotten into some very hard and challenging uh, messages, topics, uh, everything from, uh, from uh, anger, undealt with anger as a source of murder to the fact that uh, a disciple of Jesus is a forgiven adulterer, um, that our idolatry and our, uh, our, our infidelity is, um, is a universal reality, but Jesus in exposing that reality does not leave us to our own devices but says, now that you know what you are apart from me, cast yourself in even greater dependence upon me, that there is a victory that is to be found, but that victory is found not through our attempts to white-knuckle our way up a ladder, um, but it's in recognizing that Jesus is the ladder. God come down to us. The whole reason God came down, (laughs) why the gospel is down to earth, is because we are not capable of climbing to heaven. So this week, we are going to be considering Jesus' challenging words uh, around oaths, promises, or what I would say that um, the call upon the disciples' life to move into truth-telling. It's a call to fidelity and simplicity of speech. And um, the, the text we'll be looking at is, Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. But I want to just begin here with a passage from James. James chapter 3, verses 9 and 12. Very, it's very clear that James had in mind the very words of Jesus here. Um, but he begins by telling us in chapter 3, there's a great focus in the book of James on um, how damaging the tongue can be. Uh, how, how dangerous words are. <laughs> um, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. We have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water, speaking of the danger of our speech and, and the problem of not being truthful, of utilizing our lips to uh, tear down. But what about the idea, the problem of utilizing our speech to commit ourselves uh, to things that we cannot keep, to give our allegiance, if you will, to other kingdoms besides the kingdom of God? What about the ways that we use speech uh, to, to drive someone uh, to make promises to us because of our fundamental distrust of them? And how often do we make promises that come out of our natural inclination toward dishonesty? These are the questions that I want to explore today because James says in chapter five, verse 12, um, and basically, uh, this is the, the second verse. I would say it's very dangerous to take a single passage out of Scripture and to build an entire theological grid um, out of it. 
in Matthew um, chapter 5, verse 33 and 34, the church unfortunately has historically looked for ways to get around the totality of Jesus' words. Um, don't make oaths, but you have to when it comes to this, in ways of justifying war, of ways of justifying uh, separation of, of church and state, allegiance to God and country. Um, and so what we have to consider is that James here is going to state with the same sort of all-encompassing words uh, what Jesus himself has to say about oath-keeping. And I'll, and I'll tell you why we need to actually ask ourselves, what is it that we are making oaths to? Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven. He's not talking about foul language. He's talking about verbal oaths or, or contracts. Not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. I was thinking about um, the passage in Colossians chapter 4, Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to know how you ought to answer each one. To be seasoned with grace means that we are committed as people who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus to love without contingency. And love without contingency, love that drives our decision making, should be marked by a simplicity. Complexity of language is often a sign of, of that waxing of eloquence. It's why we always say we can't trust politicians. The, the circular argumentation where you listen to someone talk for 30 minutes and you realize they actually never said anything. Uh, the, the hyperbolic realities of how we talk. I know that when I was a kid, I would, my um, oaths tended to be, um, uh, tended to come out of my fear of being caught for my dishonesty. And so my dishonesty would drive, I swear to you, I swear, I didn't do it. You know that statement, that phrase? It's why I, I, I think um, Immanuel Kant was so deeply disturbed by the, by the concept of oath-keeping. He was a great philosopher because he said that by the very nature of us making people swear to tell the truth, we are in essence, util the, the oath becomes a replacement for the fact that, uh, or becomes an encouragement for the dishonesty. If I make the oath, they won't push me any further. They won't, they won't ask, go any deeper. And I think that that is often the case. How many people, just because someone required that you put your hand on the Bible and make, a, make a, an oath, how does that guarantee the honesty of a human being? If what Jesus is telling us is true, he is saying that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. So we need to understand that our oaths, our promises, we always find ourselves at some point violating those promises. We are a people that will at times be faithless. We are a people that have hearts that tend to give their allegiance to things other than Jesus. And so Jesus, once again, is bringing us to the problem. The problem is not the oath. The problem is the heart of men and women. And how easy oaths can become um, a, a, a false sense of comfort uh, or, or a cover-up for uh, dishonesty. How easy it is for us to demand of someone an oath as a way of, um, of, of 
hiding behind the fact that we just simply don't trust that person. And so I think that these are layers that we've got to consider. When it says, let your speech always be with grace, it means that we believe the best. We hope the best, and we don't need to utilize persuasive words. What we need to be is conduits of love. We need to be conduits of grace. Now, there's a place for um, witness that requires, at times, explanation. But the best explanations should be able to be stated in the simplest ways. I, I was fascinated at how often we think we're clear when we're not clear. In writing a book, I felt like I spent, I mean, I did so much editing before I even gave it to an editor that I was like, my goal was to leave them with nothing to do. But when I got it back from the copy, like the fourth round of copy editing, it was the, where it was really insightful is how often we think we're being clear when we're not because we, don't, we have a lens by which we look at everything we say and everything we write and everything we do. And so I would write and I'm like, this is so clear. Oh my gosh, if only I could preach this clear. And then they'd be like, I don't know what you mean by this paragraph. And I'd be like, well, you're dumb. You know, I just immediately get all self-defensive, like, you don't read enough. <laughs> no, no, it actually was usually, they were right. There was something missing, some piece that's missing. Uh, and I think that when it comes to witness, the simplicity of language, the way that I would get to the clarity was not by adding more words. It was usually by, by a removal of unnecessary words that hindered the meaning. It was a move, to, uh, simplicity is... The, um, it's been stated uh, by Voltaire that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And we need to be a people that live with a simplicity of language. I, I think that uh, even Jesus, as he'll move into prayer, he's like, don't think you'll be heard because of your many words. He's like, there, there needs to be a, a childlike quality to our faith and even to our speech, a simple trust. Um, and we're not in the, we don't need to, to we're not asked to be lawyers we're asked to be witnesses to Jesus. But we often act like lawyers, constantly defending the reasons we do, the things that we do. I know as a, pa as a preacher, it's, it's so easy to get on the, uh, get on the defensive um, when people you know, question something you taught or, or it hurts when they criticize you. You wanna, you wanna make a defense. You wanna tell them why they're wrong. But I, I love that Jesus is like calling us back to a place where just, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So I, if you're wondering why I want to talk about the importance of simplicity of speech in connection with O's because I think they're interconnected. I love um, that, that Jesus here is going to move us into a place where once again he is going to question our allegiance and ask us why we do the things that we do. So let's take a look. The first thing we're going to consider is this Greek word holos. Holos in the Greek means whole or totality, completion. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 33, um, in 30, the first part of 34, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. There are many commands in, in the scripture around the Hebrews' covenantal relationship with God. And, his, and their condemnation was their inability to keep their oath. So the issue was not the oath. So the issue was the problem of the heart. And that's why Jesus is bringing them to the, like, he, what, he's, what he's doing is not diminishing 
the Old Testament law, what he's showing is that human beings in a fallen state are incapable of keeping the law. That's why Paul said, if I didn't know the law, I wouldn't know what sin is. That, that I'm a consistent violator of God's, of God's character. I'm a consistent violator of God's commands. Jesus is saying, listen, they, they, were, oath, they were oath keepers or speakers, but they were oath breakers because the heart would not allow them to keep what they promised with their lips. And so Jesus isn't diminishing the law. What he is saying is that the law, this law is not capable of being kept in a fallen state. And, then, and, and all you have to do is look at the history of God's chosen people and you see how often they violated this law. Again, you've heard it said that to the people long ago, do not break an oath, but to fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. That statement, at all, is a singular Greek word, holos. Now, historically, the church has looked for loopholes in regards to this particular verse because of how total it is. And if it was the only time it appeared in the New Testament, I think you would have a pretty strong case that it can't mean what it says it means. But the fact that James actually utters it in, in, in not in exactly the same way, the synoptic gospels point us toward this reality. And I think that what Jesus is pointing us toward is, is, is calling us to um, ask the question of what, where are we creating loopholes? So this is how the church would traditionally define it. Going all the way back to Augustine, which is, well, now that the Roman Empire has is, is embraced Christianity, um, we can now make a commitment. We can, now, we can now make our commitments to God and country because it's a Christian nation, which then led to entire theories on um, just war theory of, well, it's not talking about oaths to government. Um, it's not talking about oaths to serve um, your nation. Um, it's talking about, you know, those more secondary oaths of making unnecessary promises uh, to one another. So it's speaking more on a familial level, not on a, not on a whole scale. This verse does not allow that. And so if you read commenta um, commentaries, so I was actually looking actually at, um, at John MacArthur's. He argues that Jesus himself commit, uh, made an oath um, statement when he was stood before the Sanhedrin and they said, are you the son of God? But I would challenge what MacArthur is saying because that is not an oath. In fact, he does not say, I swear before God and you that yes, I am who you say that I mean, he said, he said, you have spoken it. He just puts it back on them. MacArthur also uses the example of Paul testifying before the church. I, he says, um, God is my witness that, uh, that I speak the truth to you, but he is testifying. He is not making a commitment. Uh, he's not making some kind of promise to the people. He is testifying to the truth of his statement. That is very different uh, than, uh, than an oath being made and, and expected to be kept 
some sort of, some sort of out, like extra covenantal promise. And I think that this is, the, this is one of those things where we have to be okay with the discomfort of what Jesus is challenging us on. Because the whole, the totality of this statement, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. I know, I know Darcy and I will, um, will have this classic, you, you're in a marriage and you're like, you swear to me that you didn't, you didn't take the, the, the keys off the counter. I'm like, I swear I didn't, like, I'm like a little kid. I'll just turn into a little kid when I actually just don't remember if I did or not. <laughs> it's like the parental, or as kids, like these, these, the ways that we, we justify, like that seems like a valid thing. I want to get to the truth. But, but faith and love require a disposition of trust that is not natural to the human disposition. And so Jesus doesn't give us, I don't think he's given us much wiggle room here. And I'm not going to get into whether you should, whether you should serve the military. or. I think that, that Jesus is calling us to all. I think that the human heart is an idol factory. Um, and when it comes to our allegiance to, to, um, to our nation, uh, to our families, uh, to our jobs, uh, whatever it is, those places that require oaths um, within civil, uh, a part of our kind of civil obedience schemes, I'm, I'm asking us to ask the hard question, are we comfortable answering yes or no whenever it is possible? And are we willing to ask the question, am I making a commitment that I should or should not be making based upon my allegiance to Jesus? I think that that's the more important question. I don't think that this is meant to draw hard lines in the sand and A, who's gonna police that anyway? Uh, you know, there's been attempts in church history to have a perfectly, ethically Christian controlled city. Uh, that was something that Calvin attempted to do in Geneva. It didn't work because the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. <laughs> I, I think that another, another way that we're going to see the danger of oaths is when we actually consider the fact that most of the Midwest and the Bible Belt, if you ask someone, they would say that they are Christians. If you went to, if you went to one of the most secular places in the world, Scandinavia, where the, the belief rate is like at a, at, a, at a non-existent level, they still will say due to their political heritage that they're Lutheran. And I think that we need to understand that, that this is one of those areas where I, I made a commitment before God and men based upon my introduction into the church that now I am this because I said this in front of so-and-so. And I think that this is one of the great dangers of a false belief that can be built upon an oath and how we can be deceived in that. So I want us to just consider two specific areas. If Jesus says at all, and he's not giving us much wiggle room, and, and, and we have lots of questions around those, let's, let's, instead of getting into that, this is what you should not do, this is what you should do, let's just, let's actually ask the question of what do you think Jesus is hinting at? What do you think Jesus is pointing at the danger? And the first is, is that I think that oaths can hide unbelief and they can feed idolatry. Matthew 5, verse 34, the second half, he says, 
don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. I, I think, first of all, O's can hide unbelief. Often, the reason that we make commitments that we make are driven by the fact that we actually don't believe it. If I say it, I'll believe it. If I, if I make a, or, or I'm going to commit to it so that no, you don't push me any further on it. And so, so I think this is one of the great areas where Jesus is challenging the reasons why we do the things that we do. And you think about the ways that oaths can hide unbelief. If you, if you went through, if you were, grew up Catholic and you went through the um, entrance into the Catholic faith, the fundamental belief is that you are a Catholic, no matter what. <laughs> and, and this is why, you know, every time you watch, how many of you guys have seen The Godfather? It's, it's, I was just watching a show that was basically challenging whether it was one of the greatest movies of all time. I think it is one of the greatest movies. Um, but what is the classic, uh, the classic presentation of, of the mob? Is that they're, they're, they're usually very religious, right? They're like, they go and they, they kill off their enemies and then they go do their confessional. And, and it is, and they, you know, I remember the, the powerful scene of, uh, at the end of the, um, at the, I think it's Godfather 2, when they have the, uh, the, the, the big killing off of everyone while there's the, uh, is that the Godfather 1 or 2? It's been a long time. It's 1. At the end of 1, when, they, when they're bringing their baby through dedication, the Catholic, the baby baptism, and then at the exact same time, they're slaughtering every single one of their rivals, just destroying them, dead. That... That idea that I'm okay because I have my name signed on a document, I'm committed to a particular, a, a particular group, that I am therefore now justified before God, is not, that is not, a, it may be a weird idea on the West Coast where we're super casual and we're like the only place in the world that like really embraces the idea of non-denominational. Anytime I go to speak anywhere, like if it's on the East Coast or in Europe, they'll be like, we're non-denominational, and they immediately just think you're a cult. That just means that you don't like authority. That's what that means. So like, oh, so you're saying you're not qualified to be a pastor, and it's possible. <laughs> but, but much of the world is driven by its identity is connected to that which it has publicly declared its allegiance to. And so the unbelief is hidden behind the verbal commitment and the identity that one finds in that group. And I mean, you think about this. This is why it's so heartbreaking for so many parents when your kids, they grow up their whole life, they're Christians with you, right? They go to church with you and then they become adults. And, and you realize that their identity as a Christian was really just their identity with you as their kid. And we're doing what they were told to do but they had never come into a real belief system for themselves. But we don't know that because, because they're good kids and they're doing what we ask them to do. And if we're good parents and we love on our kids, they, they, they probably will do what you ask. But that doesn't guarantee that just because they made some verbal commitment at Awanas 
or they, or, they, or they said yes to Jesus at church camp or got baptized like I did when I was 13 and had to sign a covenantal paper for the particular denomination I was in that I was saved at all. I had no belief. I was just doing what I thought I was supposed to do. And I think that Jesus is saying often that sometimes the words we say, the things that we verbally commit to is another way of hiding uh, hiding from the fact that what we are committing to we don't really believe in at all. And, and, and often we can be unaware. I actually would argue that I was unaware of my unbelief. Um, I, didn't, I hadn't thought through it at all. I was just being obedient to do what I knew. I loved my mom and I knew she was worried about my salvation and I, and I wanted to be accepted. And so I got baptized because I didn't want to be an outsider in that group I was in. And I think that that kind of group think is very much a problem. And one of the things that Jesus is pushing on is, is our yes and no is enough because, because our lives should actually demonstrate the truth of the thing that we're committed to. I, not only can it hide unbelief, but it can definitely fe- uh, feed idolatry. I think one of the most damaging phrases used in church history is for the love of God and country. Now, I'm not, I'm not challenging uh, one's gratefulness for the place where we live or our, or our call or scripture's call for us to be, uh, to live peaceably amongst all, all people if possible, Paul writes. And I think that we have civil responsibilities, but our first and foremost allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. And I think one of the things that Jesus is challenging, and this is a thing that should leave us a little bit uncomfortable, and this is one of the reasons that early Christians were killed, is they would not give their allegiance to Caesar as Lord. But Jesus did nothing. There is nothing that would lead us to believe that Jesus came to turn over government structures or social structures. Uh, He definitely wasn't calling us to legislate morality. What he was calling us to do was to be a unique king, a reflection of the kingdom, a kingdom outpost, if you will, in which which our love is driving the things that we do um, and becomes, we becomes, we, we learn to become what Jesus says we are, salt and light in a world of darkness. Does our lives flavor the world with the presence of Jesus? And I think that this call, there is a line in the sand that Jesus calls people to. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. He doesn't chase after the young rich ruler when the young rich ruler walks away because he had much and his heart was greed when Jesus said, go sell everything you have. This wasn't a call to uh, universal poverty. This was Jesus going after that young man's God, which was his possessions, his wealth. And don't think for a second that our allegiance to our nation, to our political affiliations or temperaments aren't dangerously seductive when it comes to the idolatry of the human heart. Our worship of country or our ideal of what the country ought to be, often leads to to a lack of faithfulness to Jesus. Our 
our shaping by our society. This is why parents, you struggle so much if there's a true generational gap. You have baby boomers to gen, uh, I mean, forget Gen X, we're hard enough. We're just, we're just contrarians and we're guided in the 90s by self-hatred. That's been replaced with, a, you know, and at least we were passionate, even if it was self-hatred. Um, then it moved into sort of this, this, I, this kind of new idealism that, that I think millennials and, and even moving to my son and daughter's generation, that Gen Z, where the, the hyper um, expression of the individual and the rights to define truth for ourselves um, has led to an unwillingness to give our allegiance to Jesus as the ultimate authority over our lives because we have so fully given our allegiance to a world order that creates for us the rights to do what we want no matter what the consequences. And I think that this is a deeply problematic ideology and that the idolatry, and it doesn't matter, you can be on the far left, you can be on the far right, if your commitment and your main passion is political and social change through your particular political leanings, then you are missing the mark on the gospel. Because Jesus reminds us, as we will look at next week and the week after, that the very people that we are now against are the very people that we're supposed to be loving and witnesses to. It puts us in a very difficult place. And so I'm not here to tell you when you should or shouldn't do something. I'm here to ask, have we asked ourselves the hard heart question? You can be as patriotic as you want to be, but if that patriotism overrides your love of Jesus, your flag is bigger than your vision of the cross, or it doesn't matter, that left, that left social, you're obsessed with social justice and, and being a, a conduit for, for uh, racial reconciliation and the various and, and rights of women and all these things that, that, listen, the gospel hits on every one of those things, but that none of it can override our total commitment to Jesus as Lord. I think what our country has taught us to do is to honestly, America is not a country plagued by um, a, a worship of country, maybe a worship of, of something that doesn't exist. What we've really been trained to do is the worship of ourselves. That's what our secular age has given us more than anything else. And the fundamental belief that we are right, even when we don't know what we're talking about. I think that's also one of the most damaging things. We have an entire culture that is, that is, that is actually breeded within us a, a belief system that does not allow space for a distrust of the heart. In fact, we're called to follow our hearts. That's what we're called to do. But the, the, Jesus, if he's doing anything on the Sermon on the Mount, he is first and foremost telling you, you should not trust your heart. And what you need is a new heart. <laughs> He's leading us to a place of desperation. And so, yes, O's can give us a false confidence. You can make a verbal commitment to God, to, uh, to ideals, country, doesn't matter, and, and not actually believe those things. So, I mean, 
that's the other issue. It's like, so what? You raised your hand. You said the Pledge of Allegiance, but you have actually zero patriotism. You don't, you don't care about the country. You don't care about the... We, we, what I think Jesus is pointing out is that we kind of, by nature, are liars. And it's a problem. And getting rid of O's is one of the ways of, of revealing what's actually going on in the heart and forcing us to ask the question, do I mean what I say and am I doing what I say? Second reality, that feeding of idolatry is, is something that I think that is, is, is a challenging thing for us. What have we committed ourselves to? And does that commitment override our commitment first and foremost to Jesus as King? Finally, I want us to consider this, that O's can be a cover on a personal, relational level. O's can be a cover for dishonesty and distrust. And I think this is the most crucial aspect of this. And, and I'm not here suggesting that there are not exceptions to, I mean, I would argue that the marriage covenant is a oath. <laughs> and, and the marriage covenant should be honored, which is the whole reason that we looked at last week, that the point of the passage is not when can someone get divorced and when can someone get remarried. The point of the passage is, is that God hates divorce and because he loves, he believes in covenant because he's a faithful God. He's because he is faithful and he also loves us and knows how much our lack of fidelity to one another and our unwillingness to often push through difficult situations um, is something that will hurt not just one person in the exploding marriage, but it hurts both. Well, this, once again, he is taking us into that place where we're asking the hard question of what am I loyal to? What have I committed to? Am I a person that hides, uh, hides dishonesty behind, behind O's that leave me feeling safe? Am I a person that, that where my idolatry is being challenged by the things that I've committed myself to? Well, what about this? O's as a cover for dishonesty and distrust. Matthew chapter 5, verse 36 and 37. You do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Dishonesty is, is, a, big, is a big problem. And one of the reasons we often swear is to cover up dishonesty. I swear I didn't do it. And, and we think that the, that the more uh, vehemently we deny, the more we will be believed. And one of the great examples of personal dishonesty hidden behind an oath is what? Peter. And his denials. Three times he denies that he is connected with Jesus to protect himself. And was his fear, was it founded? It absolutely was. I, you know, I, I heard a comedian recently, it's like how we love to say that if we were there, we would have done it differently. How we always, we always think that we would have responded better. But none of us could say that if we were in Peter's position, that like, I would never have denied Jesus. That's exactly what Peter said. And Jesus used him as a, as, as a living illustration of the silliness of making promises that you can't keep. Of, of basically making promises that, that are connected to um, realities that you do not know about yourself. He is put into harm's way and self-preservation, fight or flight, 
for Peter, it was not fight, it was flight. And he immediately denied Jesus. And I think that, and, and he did it by, he swore to Jesus that he would not deny him, and he, and he protected himself by swearing that he didn't know Jesus. So it was like a double oath, a promise he couldn't keep, and then a lie to protect himself. Both ultimately came from him not understanding himself and what he was apart from Jesus, as well as the natural tendency to utilize our swearing as a way of hiding something that isn't true. I like what um, Harry Blumier said about truth. He said, truth is regarded as a kind of pudding or brew which you can concoct from human opinions. Truth is more like a rock than a pudding. And I think that that is a very, that is a very true statement is that when we are dishonest with our words, we forget that we are literally fighting against the, the law of God which is written into the fabric of the universe. This is why Jesus said you can either be broken, you can be broken uh, upon it, or you can be smashed by it. <laughs> and, and I think that if we would let the truth of who Jesus is break us free from our dishonesty, we would be far less likely uh, to, make, uh, to make verbal O's as a means of, of relieving ourselves from interrogation. We actually were, lived with a spirit of truth-telling. If when we did something wrong, we just were quick to confess it, it's when we hide from our sin that we are now forced into the position to protect the lie that we are not guilty of what it is that we did. One of the most damaging things I've seen when couples have had infidelity is truth coming out in like little pieces. It's like the guilt is so much there's a confession, but the confession isn't a full confession because the fullness of the confession they think in their mind would lead to the absolute for sure end of that relationship. And so they hold back information. And then the partner asks like, are you swearing to me? That's all. And they're like, and then a few days later, a little more comes out. Nothing is damaging like the destruction of trust through dishonesty, especially that dishonesty that, that flows out of I mean, we put ourselves in even more guilt, <laughs> if, if you will, when we swear that we didn't do it when we did. And the destruction of trust is the destruction of a marriage covenant. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's, if it can't be built on trust, what is it built on? A piece of paper means nothing. It can be a cover-up for dishonesty, but our demand of others to swear to us can be a cover-up of distrust. And this is a challenging one because I think that in an age in which everything we do seems to be driven by feelings rather than facts, and we, and we, are, we are encouraged by our society to trust our hearts, to trust our feelings. Listen, I do not diminish human beings being a, a, a a plethora of feelings and feelings are a beautiful thing that keep us from being robots and anytime I meet people that's why I dislike stoic philosophy this idea that feelings should be so oppressed that one can just live a virtuous life and the way that one lives a virtuous life is essentially don't be a human being don't let don't let your emotions get out of control don't let your feelings get in the way no what we should be is grounded on truth so that our feelings can take their proper place. It's when our feelings override truth 
that we get ourselves in trouble. So this is a, an area Jesus says, don't make oaths. Don't, don't, don't be swearing by things. Just let your simple yes or no. But what about those of us who ask people to make something that Jesus said they shouldn't do? What does that say about us? Because the reverse is true. He, it doesn't, he doesn't say you can't make oaths or you, you, you can't give an oath, but you can make people give you an oath. No, that's not. There is a, there's a full a full circular encompassing reality to this. We can't demand people to make promises to us um, uh, without once again showing that at the, at the center is a heart of distrust. Dishonesty is a reality that we must all fight. And the idea isn't never be a liar again. No, just be quick to confess. The spirit of truth will bring to remembrance the things that Jesus said the spirit of truth will illuminate our dishonesty the question is, is what will we do with that illumination will we bring it out into the light if we were quick to bring our brokenness into the light in front of one another maybe we'd be we would be less likely to demand uh, demand oaths because that person has never been honest with me about anything and has never brought anything into the light if we understand that we are we will do both of those things we want guarantees because we don't trust. And we often, use, we often use promises to cover up realities of dishonesty. And I think all of it is a violation of the central reality by which we must interpret the Sermon on the Mount, which is love. Grace is love without contingency. I once said, in, uh, I shared this in a sermon on, on the, the challenge of forgiveness, is that when grace rules a home, forgiveness is the air the people in that home breathe. But when, when grace does not rule the home, then forgiveness, forgiveness is, is something that is constantly being sought after because, because there's this continual sense that I'm failing this person. I said, my kids never asked Darcy and I for forgiveness for anything unless we said, what do you say to your sister? Or what do you say to your brother if they got in a, in a fight? And why did they not ask? Because forgiveness was, it was never even a question. It was never a possibility that that, that would not be available. Why would they ask me for something that they knew was, in, was by nature theirs because there was nothing they could do to diminish my love for them? And what it allowed for was the ability to direct them toward truth that wasn't built upon guilt and shame. And it wasn't built upon, it wasn't built upon, uh, upon the, I swear, I promise, I, I don't feel like our kids were, were, um, were, I think of the dishonesty that I lived with as a kid, I never felt safe anywhere. So everything I did was, was driven by a fight or flight uh, reality where, I, to be honest is to be destroyed. To be honest is to be, is to be hated. But when we allow grace to rule our lives, that there is no threat of that. And so it's not hard. Our kids were notorious for doing something that I never did as a kid. And Darcy would probably agree with this, but I can't speak for her totally. But our kids would be the first to come and tell us something they did. It wouldn't be something that we caught. It would just be something they would tell us. And it's not because they were 
perfect kids. It's just because they knew it was safe to be honest. They knew it wasn't going to diminish anything. That doesn't mean that they never had exceptions to that rule. But I would say for the most part, Henry's 21 now, he still will call us when he feels guilty about something. We're like, dude, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to apologize to me. Like, I love you, man. You're doing great. We're just proud of you. I, and I think that this, this is the, the thing that I want us to understand is that love believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. And the one that is controlled by grace does not need to make empty promises because their yes and no flows out of the light of Jesus, which allows us to be a people of simplicity. Truth-telling requires simple faith and great love. It's not easy to be honest. Within your marriages, I would ask you that reality. Do you feel like you can be honest with one another? Darcy and I have, have, have gone through incredibly challenging seasons uh, in our marriage. You know, our, you don't escape the brokenness of your childhood, but it can never be an excuse either for bad behavior now. And to learn for me to come into the light and to be quick, to be honest, I, I, like I can turn into a nine-year-old that's like in trouble with his hand in the cookie jar. Like I'll, I'll be dishonest about the dumbest things. Like it's like I just revert to an eight-year-old. Like it's like, did you get this thing on Amazon? No. It's like, oh, I see the purchase right here. Oh God, I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What is wrong with me? She's like, I don't know. We ask that question every day. Um, <laughs> but it's the ability to, to, even to be able to move through those things, for, forgive those things, understand, be gracious with one another, understand that, there's, that, that we are nuanced creatures and there's a whole complex reason for the, reason, the things that we do and nothing is beyond God's forgiveness nor should it be, be beyond our ability to forgive one another. And we need to ask the question of is our loyalty first and foremost to Jesus or is our oaths to our, our, our place in this world more important to us than the kingdom of God. You see how oaths touch on so many things. They hit on dishonesty and distrust. They hit on false, false belief and, and a cover-up for something that, that isn't real. They also touch on where our loyalties really are. And I think that this is why Jesus is bringing us to the heart of the matter once again. Because he wants us to be a people that recognize that he is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but through him. And that the truth of who Jesus is, is that he is truth embodied. Our knowledge is a relational knowledge. And our relationship with him, like any relationship, must be built upon the simple yes and no of a, of a heart that continually comes into the light, that believes in God and trusts him at his word and just simply lives in the light of the gospel, recognizing that all of us will stumble. But when we remember that God has come down to us, that grace allows us to get up again and again and to be simply truth tellers to be faithful and to be marked by a simplicity of speech that is able to tell people of the hope that is within us.
Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And I pray today that we would be a people that truly live in the power of the gospel, that we would not hide behind the lies of this world, that our faithfulness, our fidelity, our commitment would be to you. Not, we're not making a promise to be perfect from now on. What we are committed to is believing that you are as faithful as your scripture declares. That there is nothing we can do to diminish the total and complete work of the cross. And if the gospel means anything, it means that you have come down to us in our brokenness because we are not capable of saving ourselves. So forgive us for making promises we can't keep. Instead, help us to just simply be committed to walking in the light and to be carriers of your love. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Lord Jesus, may that be the guiding principle of this community, and I pray love over this community. I pray that each person here would know where their allegiance lies. And if it's not to you, Jesus, first and foremost, I pray that we would just simply repent. That beautiful word just means to turn, to change direction. I was chasing after this. I was making this my God. Now I'm coming back to the heart of the Father, back to the heart of forgiveness, back to the heart of Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click give from the menu bar. May God bless you.